Welcome to The Fear of God, episode 16. We are a podcast exploring the horror genre through the lens of Christianity, and I am one of your hosts, Reed Lackey. And I am also one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. We are very, very excited about today's episode specifically. Um, not that there's anything particularly exciting about the number 16, um, but a while back we posted a listener survey to allow listeners the opportunity to um, select some of our upcoming content. And we got a lot of responses to them. We're very grateful for all of those responses. And one of them specifically, we gave you a number of choices. And uh, by a wide margin, the film that you wanted us to talk about was today's film. And uh, we are talking today, once we get uh, fully into it, we are talking today about the film from 2012 called the Cabin in the Woods. I'm very, very, very excited about this. Hey, Reed, what were the um, what were the other selections? I can't remember. Um, I remember some. One of them was uh, The Omen from 1976. Mm. I know one of them was The Mist. Um, one of them was uh, Drag Me to Hell from 2009. And I forget what the final one is. I'd have to look back at it. But, but uh, yeah, by, by a, a wide margin, Cabin in the Woods won out. I think most of the vo- I think everything got maybe one or two votes, uh, but then all of the rest of the votes went to Cabin in the Woods. Well, and, and, <laughs> so, and arguably, I mean, we did watch Cabin in the Woods based on viewer voter selection. Um, but arguably, I think Tuesday night, we also all watched Drag Me to Hell together as a nation. Um. Yes. <laughs> See, listeners, you should probably know that we have recorded. We are recording mm. this right now, even though you're hearing it the first week of December. We're recording it the second week of November, and uh, I'm sure you guys were around to understand <laughs> for all of that. Some, uh, what, I don't know happened? how you might have missed that, but you know, it's been a bit. Of a, it's been a somber week. Yeah, it, it it really it really has been. I know. I know. Listeners thus far really haven't commented on the. The time delay. I know it might seem a bit strange for us to be talking about um, what is to us current events in a little bit of a time loop because, you know, we're talking about current current events about a month late. But, yeah, it's been a, a tumultuous week for a lot of people um, given the results of the election. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, we 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 press on. <laughs> I was. I, w- I know I specifically, maybe you too, Nathan, was reached out to. Uh, people said, yeah, you should just do a podcast on uh, the election season. And I, and I responded typically that was too frightening even for me to yeah. to try to, to mine substance from. It did occur to me that, you know, 
we don't really have to watch anything. We can just sort of talk about what's going on in the world. Yeah. It's a- but all that said, all that said, enough, enough dourness, enough dourness and, <laughs> you know, scare, too, too much of the scary. Let's jump into talking about cabin in the woods unless unless there is another element you'd like to talk about reed no no let's do it let's uh this i'm really excited about this conversation so let's have it all right let's do it so i i saw cabin in the woods in the theater um when it came out and then rewatched it for our podcast today had you i mean uh, you know is this like the babadook is this like um uh, it follows. Are you in, are you in the half a dozen at this point yet? <laughs> it's okay um, if you are. I'm not making fun. I'm just curious. Sure, sure. Um, I also saw this movie in the fe- theater. I went with a buddy, uh, buddy of mine, Brian, to go see this in the theater. And uh, shout out Brian! Shout out Brian! Um, and then when I uh, when I got it on DVD, well, Blu-ray. Um, well, let's get it right. Let's get the format right. Um, when I got, when I got it on Blu-ray, I have since seen it. I think this last night's viewing to prepare for this episode was my fifth time watching it. I want to say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it quite a bit, but unlike the Babadook and It Follows, uh, this has had a couple of years to gain some repeat viewings. Sure, uh, sure. Most notably, I believe it was. Last year at Halloween, or it might have been the year prior, but within the last two years, we had a big group of people over after Halloween festivities and, and Cabin in the Woods is the, is the film that we watched. And, um, it was, uh, you know, m- much fun was had by all because let's face it, as much as we're about to dive in and talk about it, this is, this is undeniably, I think, a very fun movie. It is a very fun movie. And it, it should be mentioned, Reed, that viewers won't know this, but, uh, despite the fact we're talking about Cabin in the Woods, I feel a little bit like we're in the movie Unfriended right now because <laughs> this is <laughs> typically our typical mode of recording is literally just earphones or however we record, but no visual element, um, except for when I was out there visiting you. And, and for the first time with this recording, we are testing out Skyping and earphoning and all sorts of, I feel like a cyborg a little bit with all these wires <laughs> coming out of my body. But that said, I can see you and you can see me and I can see a little version of me. So I'm worried that at any moment there's going to be a little strange icon pop up that is intercepting our call. And <laughs> we're gonna, and that person you killed a number of years ago, we're going to find out is back from the dead and attacking us. Oh my gosh. That'll be my confession time to everybody <laughs> like, Oh wait. Uh, so something, something listeners should know about. <laughs> That'd be terrible. Oh man. You don't have any, bl- you don't have any blenders in that room. Do you? No, no, I don't. Thank God. Good. Good. <laughs> Good. Anyway, enough of that. Enough of that silliness, uh, onto the cabin in the woods. So for me, I, um, you know, like I said, second time viewing it and I'm a bit of a sleepy Sally these days and go to bed a little early. And so I watched it last night and despite you and I had this conversation off mic earlier today, despite being quite tired in the watching of it, still thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it's just, it's just a fun flick. You know, it's got that sort of Whedon snap and, and you know, the banter, the clever writing, the, you know, really funny setup punchline kind of humor that he employs so well and just set against the backdrop of a pretty, I I don't know if you would agree with this, but it's pretty dark. Oh, oh, (laughs) It's a very kind of, you know, if I may use this word, nihilistic kind of, kind of flip. I think that's an appropriate word. But nonetheless, very fun. So, 
it was enjoyable to, to jump back in. And I did see it in the theater before I was that aware of these two actors, but was pleasantly reminded of uh, Chris Hemsworth, of course, uh, of Thor fame. And though I don't really watch it, my wife is an avid Grey's Anatomy fan, so I immediately recognized Jesse Williams' name. And so that was kind of fun yeah. to see him in that. He's a, he's a regular on that series. And just a really interesting dude besides. Um, but that's a whole other thing. Hmm. So yeah, that, that was fun. That was fun for me to see. Um, you know, uh, if, if we're, if we're steering into likes, dislikes again, just I find that this is one of those movies and no immediate comparison is coming to mind. Maybe you can help out with this where I remember watching it the first time and having no real idea at first what's going on. You know, the, this sort of parallel action of the, the scientists or whatever they are, you know, that first viewing where you're just kind of uh, confused is too strong a word, but just un- unsure exactly what's going on. And I sort of wish you could have that experience again, but it is fun rewatching it, knowing what's going on and just being able to pay more attention to the layers that are put in by way of those, you know, the Bradley Whitford, Richard Jenkins characters. So that's just a really fun sort of parallel story that's happening there. And I'm just kind of rambling at this point. Is there something you'd like to jump in? <laughs> something you'd like to sure. jump in on? Sure. Um, I'll definitely say like part of the fun of seeing it for the first time, which I mean, obviously this is a listener voted episode. So I have a strong feeling, a pretty safe bet that most of our listeners have seen this. I think that the first viewing of this film, half the fun is for most of the movie trying to figure out what's going on, what role the Bradley Whitford, Richard Jenkins characters have to do with our, you know, Chris Hemsworth, Jesse Williams character, um, and, uh, trying to see where those stories intersect. They do a really deft job of sort of dropping breadcrumbs across the way of like, Hey, here's something that will pay off later. And five minutes later, Oh, here's another thing that's going to pay off either in a joke or a plot point, uh, in just a little bit. But I think half the fun of that first viewing is trying to figure out what's going on. And then I think, I know for me, once I, once it's sort of revealed exactly what's happening, to these people, um, I found it terribly inventive. I thought it was just wonderful uh, that that everything came together in a kind of an homage of the horror genre in general. Um, you know, it very very much also a love letter to uh, to the horror genre. And so, I, yeah, I, I found it to be just an incredibly clever concept. I think that the script is wonderful. Uh, Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon on the script. Drew Goddard was the director. I don't know if we mentioned that in the, in the top of the episode, but, um, just an absolutely fantastic script. Um, in my opinion, I think one of the, one of the strongest scripts for, you know, a horror story or like a concept like this of, of any that I've ever seen. So, uh, you know, I have a couple of nits to pick, but, but those are very, very minor. I think it's a really, really great script. Yeah. And I think that, um, I, I just, I just really enjoyed that experience of trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And, and we talk a lot about on our show about, you know, what would or wouldn't make for good sequels. And and a lot of the movies we have discussed have gone on to breed multiple sequels. Um, I think something that's fun about this movie, although, you know, spoiler alert, the movie itself doesn't seem to to lend much potential for a sequel uh, based on how it ends. But it, it is fun to consider that basement scene as you know you the, theoretically they could have shot three different movies you know and and branched different directions purely based on 
what sort of artifact the characters ended up engaging with. And that was a really fun uh, to just to just sort of ponder that story potential there. Have you ever seen the movie Clue from the 80s? I'm ashamed to admit because all of our all of our mutual college theater peers are such avid fans of it. I've actually never seen Clue. Well, Clue, uh, Clue is a lot of fun. I mean, Clue is, Clue is a very fun movie. But the reason I bring it up is because um, it is my understanding, though I was not old enough to see it in the theater, it is my understanding that when it was released to the theater, it was released with three different endings. And you did not know oh, wow. until seeing the film which ending you were going to get. And I th- sure. nobody that I'm aware of has really tried that concept again. Um, but I'm hearing you talk about it. I'm like, how much fun would it be to show like the, the cabin in the woods premise? Um, you know, it's too late now because everybody already knows kind of what's going on. But if you were to take a premise like cabin in the woods and release three different films and maybe they have the identical beginning and the identical ending, but the middle part is the part where things just go a little differently and you don't know until you see the film, which version of that you're going to get. And then of course they could have a lot of fun with the Blu-ray with, you know, all three films having their own separate thing, get a different guest director for, uh, you know, quick to the typewriter. This is an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you, you used a word just a second ago that I think is very appropriate for this movie. It's just inventive. Like the, the, I love the little grace notes of the, the, the scientists or lab, whatever they are, you know, the, the professional guys. And you see the Japanese monster stuff happening. (laughs) I mean, it's just so inventive and there's clearly some competitiveness between, you know, the American monster controlling center and the Japanese monster controlling center. And yeah, I can't remember, I can't remember if they reference another one or not, but on pure, just like, you know, if we're, if we're talking just fun things, I mean, the the movie's littered with lines that are just really clever. Um, and, and you, you, you said just a second ago, one of the brilliant, facets of this movie is just the 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 setup and the payoff later and this wasn't initially where i was going with this line of thought but the part where bradley whitford loses the bet and says i always wanted to see a merman oh yeah which is which is a which is in itself a very humorous line just once you've started to understand the context of the movie but then has just a really fantastic payoff at the end. I a really disgusting, a really disgusting payoff, truthfully, but oh. it is excellently executed. Oh, it's so wonderful. Well, so that one, and then, so this is a random, a random aside, but when I was in high school, I don't even know, if, I don't know if you know this or not. When I was in high school, we did a senior project at the high school I went to where it was meant to be the sort of culmination of all these sort of skills and whatever you learned. A lot of people kind of phoned it in. A lot of people did crazy things. One guy faked a meeting with Jimmy Carter, and I don't know if he ended up passing or not, but whatever. For me personally, I wanted to make a movie. And so you had to have like this community person, a person in the community who had some skill set related to what you were doing, and they were your contact. Well, I made, and it's it's actually on my NathanRouse.com website. You could go see it. I don't know if you ever watch this. It's called Shout, and it is a... It is a spoof of Scream because this is 1997, 98. I already love it. The, the killer, well, you should go watch it. The killer kills people with shout laundry detergent. So this is what he does. But we had the Scream mask. Um, and we, anyway, we, that's actually not the point of it. The point of this story is I love lines that just really make no sense and are so stupid, but lend some immediate backstory. 
And in, I'm going to tie this into Cabin in the Woods in just a second, but in Shout, there's a scene, and it's so dumb, but God bless her, Michelle Turner, you'll never listen to this, but if you do, good work. Uh, this friend of mine is in the scene. You think she's about to be killed by the, the killer with the Shout laundry detergent. Uh, and, and some, uh, it gets kicked out of his hand and she catches it. And she says, like, you forgot. I'm the catcher for the softball team. It's so stupid. But <laughs> in, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Like the fact that she caught a thing meant that she was oh on the softball team. But where I'm going with this is one of the best lines in this movie, maybe any movie is when Chris Hemsworth gets on the motorcycle, which we've seen in the movie, but has no, has no context yet. You know what I mean? Like there's no, right, right. we just, we just see, okay, they're taking a motorcycle and Jesse, Jesse Williams says something because they're trying to get back, you know, and the, and the land, the landslide has happened and the tunnels caved in and they're trying to get away from the cabin in the woods. And there's this like five foot jump that they just can't get over. And, and Jesse Williams is like, what are we going to do? And the next shot is Je is Chris Hemsworth on this motorbike. And Jesse Williams is like, just be careful. You just, you're going to have to gun it. And Chris Hemsworth with no, there's no context to this whatsoever in the movie. His line is, I've done bigger jumps than this, you know? And it's like this great, just stupid line <laughs> that is just perfect in this movie, you know, like, yeah. What is he? Is he a stunt cyclist? You know, like <laughs> just this evil Knievel kind of character. Just we have no backstory for this up till now. And he just says, I got it. I've done bigger jumps than this. That's oh, gonna be my new like go to line in life when someone's like, Now be careful, Nathan, <laughs> with whatever you're doing. I'll just be like, Listen, I've done bigger jumps than this. That's gonna be my new my new life motto. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think my, I think one of my favorite, I think one of my favorite parts in the film is in terms of like, uh, humor is the moment when, uh, the harbinger, as he's called, the, the creepy guy from the gas station, when, oh, he, yeah, yeah. when he calls in and, and they put him on speakerphone and, and then he's just sitting there talking away and then all of a sudden he's just like, I'm on speakerphone, aren't I? <laughs> the best thing is Bradley Whitford's like, oh, I'm sorry. Let me take you off. And of course, doesn't do it. And then he goes on for like another 30 seconds or something and goes, I'm still on speakerphone, aren't I? <laughs> well, the, the beauty of that scene is he's just ranting this arcane, prophetic, mishmash, <laughs> horror, you know, uh, uh, Cthulhu kind of yeah. gobbledygook and then all of a sudden wait a minute I'm on speakerphone you know oh it's great it's great <laughs> he totally drops his character for them <laughs> and it's just, oh my gosh it is oh man it is funny something you know I, I'm I, there is a wealth of trivia to be had about this film but but I think the film is is chock full of like really really nice uh, winks and nods to the horror genre at large. Um, sure. I think that's part of the appeal of the film is that, you know, even, even in its title, The Cabin in the Woods, I think you even said in an earlier episode, uh, that we were recording, uh, you know, that's where all the scary stuff happens. You know, that, that's, that is sort of the iconic Sam Raimi really, uh, sort of most prominently capitalized on that Cabin in the Woods idea with the Evil Dead movies, but, He's not, I mean, he's of course not the only person to do it. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because I feel like the film is very evocative of a lot of things that it, 
it, it directly addresses a lot of things, but then it's also very evocative of things it doesn't even have to address. That it, it just sort of feels, I mean, if you were to examine the specific plots of tons of horror films, they don't line up to the archetypes of of what's been laid out as the conceit of this film, but it still feels very much like they probably all do, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's the brilliance of how the script is sort of generic enough to make you feel like this is every horror film, even though it's categorically its own specific horror film and is maybe really only similar tangentially to probably five or six of the multitude of horror films that are out there. But it kind of feels like it's like all of them. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that they show horror films from different regions or they show horror scenarios from different regions. Sure, you know, sure. uh, they focus a lot on the Japanese because in the scenario, in the narrative of this film, the Japanese always get the number one spot and America always comes in second, which I think that's hysterical. But, um, so that, that's the, the idea behind all of these different regions that supposedly they all have their own sort of boogeyman horror in the, in the monstrous scenario. And that's part of why I think it feels like it's every horror film. Every horror film is doing what this film is doing. And I, I really enjoy that. As a horror fan, I love that. Well, and they, they, they were able to craft a narrative that organically serves all of those conventions in a very, uh, to repeat myself, very organic way. I mean, it just, you know, it's, it's giving winks, nods, homages, all of the above to, all these different horror genres and styles while at the same time being its very own narrative, which, yeah, I mean, as you're saying, it's just a really, it's a real feat of storytelling to be able to pull that off so well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's hard for me to, it, this is funny because I mostly consider this film funny more than I do scary, but do you have any specific like, scare moments or scary scary things i wouldn't dis i wouldn't i wouldn't totally disagree with that assessment i did you know again having seen it already I, I can't remember three or four years ago when i first saw it to know what might have scared me then i mean there were a few jump moments like uh the the scene between him and her in the woods where you see her hand reach out to the side the, the hand stabbing yes yes that's very sudden. That was a good little jump moment. But, you know, I really think that, uh, and we can camp out on this as much as we want, but just the whole elevator sequence, I mean, is very dark. And, you know, I mean, if you, if you let your mind go there, it's a deeply troubling sequence of scenes. But what I wrote down, uh, specifically was he got killed by a unicorn. Like, what a terrible, what, I mean, at the same time, highly comedic and yet yeah. dreadfully awful scene, you know, like, oh, yeah, because it's, yeah, because this unicorn like stabs this dude like three <laughs> times, you know, this is, this is meant to be like the, the essence and paragon of all that is good in our imagination is the unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just totally shish kebabs this soldier guy. I know, I know. Well, and that's, you know, it's very similar to to the uh, the merman's appearance, if you will, where it's like you're kind of disgusted, but it's undeniably hilarious, <laughs> you know, sure, like sure. And, and as you said, a, you know, a, a tremendous a, a sizable payoff for the 
couple of littered, you know, mermen jokes that are in there. I mean, it is it is definitely potentially very nerve wracking or very scary um, to to think about this. But I know it is probably a horror fan's dream to as the the elevator pans out and you see all of the, oh, yeah, the yeah. you know the the shifting cubes and you catch I mean I caught uh, when I watched it again um, and I haven't uh, refreshed myself on exactly what all is specifically intentionally there I mean obviously you see the giant spider which is horrifying uh, and then also uh, you know Stephen King's Pennywise is very clearly oh, so, yes, represented yes. Uh, prominently, as are, I believe, the twins from The Shining I are, are in a different yep. uh, cubicle. And um, so it, it, it's just well that it, whole that wonderful. whole sequence where they the the elevator is paused and the ballet kid, which is Ooh. disgusting, wow. and the 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 buzzsaw head guy. Yeah, I mean they just that's a real. You know, to to just have that in the frame and him just stand there is very haunting. Oh, absolutely! Very, very scary imagery. That uh, who you dubbed the the buzzsaw head guy. Just uh, uh, the, our our fans are going to get us if we don't mention that is a uh, not a specific reference. Well, I think it is a specific reference to. It's meant to evoke uh, the bad guys from the Hellraiser franchise, which are called yep. Cenobites. Um, and uh, that, so. So you just threw me for a loop there. So I said Hellraiser. I don't know if you heard that, but oh, Cenobites. You know that sounds like I'm going to go to the Cinnabon and get some. Doesn't Cinnabites. it? That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I will never do that again now. Oh my gosh! Uh, no, and I, I apologize. Our feed must have cut out. I didn't hear you mention That's Hellraiser, right. but um, but yeah, the the Cenobite. Uh, it does sound almost sound a little bit like breakfast. <laughs> it's not, yeah. but um, but uh, but not yeah, any, not anymore. It doesn't. No, not after watching this. <laughs> Well, and can we say, okay, so I, I, we're, we're, we're jumping kind of all over the place between like technical things, scary moments, everything like that. This film kind of lends itself to that. But I just want to know, you know, Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard, whoever, why in the world is there a freaking system purge button in that lobby? Why in the world is there a button that just basically unleashes all the monsters. Like what? <laughs> right, right. What was anybody thinking to put in a button like, hey, let's just put a button that will literally set them all loose, set right, them all free. Right. I'm like, what in the way? And it's big and red and very prominent. <laughs> like, no, no. I mean, the, the thing that got me so much about that moment is that particular button that releases all the monsters. There's no glass case around it. There's no like key. You have to, no security whatsoever. Somebody could be bringing in a pizza and set it down on the can or counter and then everybody just like, oh God. <laughs> all of these monsters come <laughs> Don't call yeah, there's no like the there's no there's no like you need three keys you know no. one on each person it's just you hit the button and uh, that's all she does what if you accident you accidentally lean against it you exactly know? you're 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 touring the lab for the new guy <laughs> and he just sort of leans against it that's just death to everyone the new you know? intern just like put you know pushes <laughs> down on the uh, hey guys so this is a cool room oh crap what no, is that do? oh no merman <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just, and, and I mean, it, I think that it's interesting. The, the, the idea that all these monsters are somehow, you know, just, I mean, the, the thing that struck me, I think for the first time, probably because I'm thinking about the film as I'm watching it, like when I watched it last night, this was the first time 
that I was watching it in light of trying to have a conversation about it, have a substantial conversation. And it was the first time that it stuck out to me that the building is very corporate looking. Like it, it, it all very much looks like, you know, I was noticing, you know, as Unicorn is stabbing the man to death, then you, you know, pan down the hall and you see administration this way, you know, like, <laughs> right, and, right. and so very bureaucratic. Exactly. Yeah. Very bu- bureaucratic. And it, it was, I think that had to have been intentional, at least by look and design, you know, like it, the thought that struck me as I'm sitting there watching that, it says like, wow. So all of these monsters are just hiding in the walls of these corporate buildings. And I'm like, mm, I think. Joss Whedon right, and Drew Goddard are right. savvy enough social commentators that that's probably not an accident. It's probably sure, very intentional. Sure. The the idea of monsters hiding in the walls of a of a corporate building, um, and uh, I, I think there's a lot of things. Honestly, I don't know how long this particular episode is going to be, but I think it could easily be three and a half hours because there's so many individual scenes, individual moments that you could point to and say like, well, yeah, this says this about this part of our understanding, our psyche, this other thing has some commentary, you know, on a completely different element. It baffles me that at least the first draft of this was created in like three days. The the first draft of this screenplay, uh, you know, Whedon and Goddard were basically frustrated a little bit after some failed Hollywood um, projects. And so they kind of got, they were friends, they got together and they were just like, let's write something for ourselves. Let's just write something fun for ourselves locked themselves into a hotel room for a weekend and hammered out in three days, hammered out this, this script, which I think is just so tremendously effective. Um, and sure. I, I mean, I don't know how many changes it went through from that first three day draft to the finished product, maybe quite a few, but I just, th- I just think it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really fun film. I think it's an excellent film. I, I think it's got a lot of payoffs for anybody who's ever been or is now a fan of the horror genre. And it's not surprising at all to me that, that our listeners really wanted us to, to talk about it in general. Cause I think there's, yeah, just a ton to talk about. In the spirit of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, man, I don't even know where to start thematically. I mean, it's, uh, as I said before, even just talking about like moments and stuff like that, we could go, all over the place. What I wrote down first is we we all consider ourselves the main character in our own story, never really thinking about the fact that we're supporting characters in somebody else's. And it was something that struck me as they were, you know, a- as they're coming to the realization that they are part of a of an orchestrated story. These five characters, they go out to the cabin in the woods, weird stuff starts going down. And then when they finally realize what's been happening, they come to discover that they are part of something much larger. And granted, they don't, they don't want to be part of that thing and they openly rebel against that. But it struck me this idea of, you know, you're just, you're just going through your life. Uh, we're certainly navigating through things the way we want to, but we don't realize how much, and this is not something we need to spend a lot of time on, but we don't realize how much the things that we do and the things that happen to us are having these ripple effects everywhere else. Like the, we are impacting stories that are all around us. Most of the time, uh, we are completely oblivious to think as they initially are completely oblivious to Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins in the uh, control room. You know, they, they have no idea what's going on. And it made me think about all these things, not only about how we're impacting other things, 
but uh, it's not lost on me that they are navigating through a story. And there's even a line in the film, I believe Richard Jenkins says, uh, you know, that, that, that they have free will, that they, they have to make the choice. But all along the way, they're being manipulated by little sure. factors that they don't realize. The, the dye in the hair, um, the pheromones that they pump into the room at one point. There's a couple of times that, uh, you know, Bradley Whitford calls out for something that doesn't ultimately take fruition. Like when, uh, when the character of Marty begins to figure out kind of what's going on, he, uh, you know, Bradley Whitford comes in there and starts asking for like 500 cc's of some tranquilizer sure, sure. Uh, you know it's so it's like they have all of these tools these resources to manipulate them and i just found it fascinating that these five characters are being manipulated um but are completely oblivious to it with the exception of marty which we can talk about on a different subject in a second i think that's deliberate that it's marty who is kind of aware before anybody else of of what's going on um but i just thought that was interesting to think that we are often supporting players in something that we are patently unaware of, or, or at least not cognizant of well, as we are. And and I think to to kind of amplify that a little bit, you're you're sort of sort of brushing up against this and, and I think that we want so badly, so badly, to believe that our comings and goings are a product of our own independent agency, neglecting Often neglecting, not always neglecting, but often neglecting to recognize the sheer tonnage of elements in our surroundings and culture and environment and upbringing that are in fact influencing the decisions we make, mm, you know, yeah. and I think, I think that, and, and it is hard. It is hard. You know, you and I've talked personally on phone calls for years and, and even uh, occasionally on the podcast. Uh, for months just about discernment and what does it mean to, to kind of sift the things around you, you know, and it, it's interesting watching the movie and, and this is, this is kudos to Whedon and Goddard, but you know, at the start of the movie, you even have preconceived notions about these characters. Just, you right. know, Chris Helms, Chris Hemsworth forever and ever will be the jock. I mean, he just has that physique. He's got that look. But they intentionally are trying to play against that in in his characterization up front. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Does that make sense? Oh, um, absolutely it does. Yeah. But then the movie and the forces at work within the movie totally steer him into that mm -hmm. characterization. You know, and so I think I think there is something going on there, too, about just and what I wrote down in a very cursory manner was just media manipulation. But. You know, the, the advertising and the, the, the marketing that exists in our culture that, you know, it, I, I have not studied this stuff at length, but, you know, just, I know there's all this data about frequency of, of exposure to certain marketing and, and, and slogans and, you know, I mean, the ability to attempt to sway you to purchase a thing. Or to engage in a thing that, you know, we want to think is our own sort of devising, but ultimately is again the product of many external influences. And I think this movie really, really is fascinated with that subject. Um, right. And, and, you know, and, and even, even more to that, you know, the, the word we used a minute ago was bureaucratic, like even the Jenkins Whitford characters are just cogs in a wheel. 
Yeah. You know, they're just, they're, they're just, they're just doing their job. Yeah. You know, and so I, I don't know. I agree with you. That's a really fascinating sort of component of the movie. And even too, like, you know, to, to sort of go further with you, you mentioned the jock, but all of the archetypes that they, that they have sort of at play that are necessary for these, these ancient ones, as they call them, to be appeased. You know, you have the, the, the five categories are you have the whore, the athlete, the scholar, the fool, and the virgin. But the film is constantly undermining and subverting our opinions about those types of roles. You know, the, the, the idea of the quote unquote whore character in, uh, in the film, Jules, you know, she's, she's in a committed relationship until she's thrust into this situation. She's, you know, she's in no way that stereotype. You already mentioned, uh, Chris Hemsworth, uh, as the, as the athlete, the jock, but I think it's even more prominent, uh, in the character of Marty, who, again, I, this is what I was referencing earlier. I, I don't think it's a mistake at all that the fool of the, you know, the, the stereotypical categorical fool is the one who almost from the very beginning, knows what's really going on and suspects exactly what's happening. He doesn't know the details, but he, you know, mentions like puppeteers and, you know, we're being manipulated. And he's the one who has the reactions to like that, that scene where they're like, okay, stay together. Kurt, you know, it's after Jules has been killed and they're like, okay, we're going to go exploring, stay together. They move forward and then, you know, Richard Jenkins pumps, you know, uh, this pheromone in and he's like, no, wait, this isn't right. We should split up. And, and, uh, you know, Holden, the Jesse Williams character is like, yeah, we should split up, cover more ground. And Marty's sitting there like, what? Like, are you, right, right. Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's always sort of aware of what's going on. And he's the one, even though Dana is our, our heroine, she's the, the protagonist, the primary protagonist of the story. Marty's the one who discovers the elevator. He's the one who, who sure. uncovers the entire entrance into this subverted world. And, and he's categorized as, the fool. And so I, I think the, the film has some things to say about the flaws in categorizing people mm, and in yeah. stereotyping people that people do not break down that simply. I love that in the beginning of the film, you, you automatically think Chris Hemsworth is going to be the dumb jock character. And then he is clearly so he, he, they say in the film, he's at college on an academic scholarship. And I thought that was sure. a wonderful touch that even though he knows how to throw a football, we've seen that in the opening, you know, scene of the movie. Well, not the opening scene, but early in the movie, we see sure. him chuck a football and we know that, but he's at college for an academic scholarship. So again, making this sort of sideways conversation about how you think you understand sizing a character up. But there's really a lot more to them than that. There's a lot more going on to them. Well, and, and they play very directly right after the football throw where he is critiquing Dana's choice of textbook that she's bringing. You know, absolutely. And what's yeah. funny, again, having seen this in the theater and didn't remember much in that specific moment, you are just not accustomed to that character having that sort of mental acuity. Absolutely. And so it's a, it's a little jarring when he starts doing that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, cause at first he pulls the books out and your natural, what is your natural instinct as a viewer? He's going to poke fun at her. He's oh, going to yeah. make fun of her for being the, the book nerd, you know, the bookworm, the nerd. And then instead, what he, what does he do? He's like, these are the ones you should actually be taking with you. It's, 
you know, that, that, that professor goes through the, those books all the way in class. These are the ones you should be reading. And yeah. just, yeah, I mean, just a very smart touch in terms of playing with your expectations as a viewer. Can we, uh, since you mentioned that moment, can we briefly, uh, have a chuckle over the, um, he holds the books and looks at Jules and goes like, where did you get these? What did you do with these? And she said, I got oh, yeah, it from you. Yeah. I learned it from watching you. you yeah, know? that's a great moment. Like it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's, I, and I think that the film should be applauded for those subtle touches like that and how it's sort of entering in through the window or through the back door into these conversations. And, and I think you and I talked about this and, and obviously, you know, the, one of the primary thrusts of our show is that we look at these horror films through a lens of faith, through a Christian perspective. I think that this film could be seen to maybe even a great degree as kind of an indictment of what we would classify as like old time religion, fire and brimstone kind of, uh, kind of religion, this, this ancient sort of sacrificial ritual kind of thing. Um, I, I think that I don't, I don't know specifically because I think there's a lot more other things going on in the film, but I know you could definitely walk out of a viewing of Cabin in the Woods. And, uh, if you were not a religious thinker, you would walk away going like, yep, this is, this is what it's all like. It's all about punishment. You know, you, uh, right, you know, right. punish, punish the transgressors, uh, to appease the ancient ones as it is. And, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if that was deliberate and intentional. I don't know. Uh, much about uh, Drew Goddard's stance on faith on a personal level, but I know Whedon, I think, is is at the very least an agnostic, maybe even uh, an atheist. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some intentional sort of uh, indicting of religious thought and religious constructs in the narrative of this film. I would, I would agree. I think, I think, uh, I think the movie has a very clear agenda and indictment of. What I would call, I don't know if they would quite call it this, but like a systematic religion, you know, mm. the, the, the do's and don'ts, regard punishment or otherwise, you know, just that there is this very rigid, systematized version of how existence is supposed to be executed. And, and, and almost any world religion has a version of that. And I think, yeah, I, w- I would agree with you that there's, it, it really isn't, in fact, it really isn't very subtle in the movie, <laughs> you know, just yeah, right, that, right. You know, that we're, we're going to break the shackles of the system and let the people do what the people are going to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, something that I was pondering, you and I spoke on the phone earlier today, just kind of, uh, pre-hashing <clears throat> some of our thoughts on this movie. And, and as I've given it more bandwidth, there's a line that, that kind of hasn't left me. I wrote it down when I watched it last night and I even, kind of before we started recording, just wanted to make sure I had some of the context right and, and looked it up again. But there's a line late in the movie, and I believe it's Marty. Eh, it's either Marty or Dana in that final scene with Sigourney Weaver, where, you know, she as the director has sort of uh, expounded upon what's going on, and this is what has to happen, and this is the way it's always been. And the line that I wrote down is, it's time to give someone else a chance. Mm, yeah. And I just found that a really juicy line if you will and and you know we started the podcast flirting with the political i'm going to dive into it a little bit more here like it is hard for me as what i would want to feel like i am a discerning person of faith looking at the world 
it is hard not to look at these major political movements that have happened in the last year, like, like your Brexit, like even your Trump election, and not think these are the results of older generations' response to what they dislike or are uncomfortable with. Mm. And you could make a case that that's a broad generalization, but this is our show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, <laughs> that, that, yes, we'll just, I'll leave that comment there, but <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, a, a dear friend here in town, uh, who just tonight, uh, posted on Facebook was really lovely. This, he's a teacher and he's spending some time this weekend at an academic event with some students. And, and he posted this thing that I, I thought was so powerful that I, I kind of shared it. Um, in a nutshell, he's, he's basically espousing what he feels is the virtue of this generation. And he says, for those who decry millennials, you know, for being vapid or narcissistic, this is his words. I say, you need to turn off your hate TV and websites and come visit with me. For those feeling depressed about the future, spend time with more students. There are some amazing people coming behind you that are going to clean up the messes you've made and they'll do it with an inspiring amount of love in their hearts. Mm. And I just thought that was a really lovely, just, Good Lord, we need that sort of reminder and encouragement. But, you know, I, I feel like to harken back to witches, you know, this pledged is pledged idea, like in some ways, Cabin in the Woods is playing with that. There is this intentional willingness to sacrifice to literally, but you could say it figuratively as well in our real world, like in, in order for the system to maintain, we've got to keep feeding the beast literally in the movie you know and 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 for me this this seems like this may seem like a stretch i don't know but did you ever read any of brian mclaren's new kind of christian stuff i did yeah i read the whole trilogy yeah Yeah. um the new kind of christian new kind of christian uh last chapter and the chapter after that uh forget what the middle book well i'm 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 gonna ring the bell on you it's actually the last word and the word after that oh yes Um, you are correct but um for a lot of people who don't like brian mclaren uh, I like Brian McClare and I think he's got a lot of interesting things to say. And, and the more I pondered this thought of a generation in, in the movie, a bureaucracy willingly sacrificing others to serve what they perceive as the greater good, the sort of means end kind of, kind of philosophy. This kept coming to me. He, he talks in last word and word after that about this notion that Christians of the Middle Ages, if they were to visit churches in at the time he wrote it it was probably what 2008 or so uh, not even that probably probably been about 10 or 15 years since he wrote that you know that if they were to come visit and see our forms of expression of faith today they would have no idea what to make of it and would call us heretics Mm, yeah right and the point he's simply trying to make is that and i i'm i'm let me put it this way i'm extrapolating a point from what i think he's trying to make is that Though the essence of who God is and the, the character of, of who God is, is, let's use these words, immutable. You know, it's unchangeable. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nonetheless, our expression of our perception and understanding of who he is constantly changes. I know that seems odd, but, but this notion of time to give someone else a chance really resonated is, you know, and, and you couple that with my teacher friend's view of this younger generation and how 
they're passionate and ready and interested and eager to sort of clean up the messes of the generations that are kind of screwing it up ahead of them. You know, this, this idea, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Like you have to, as a believer, and I think this is very, very difficult, especially the older we get and the more rigid we grow in our systems of faith. You have to be open and available and flexible with, with faith, with, with your faith and how it's expressed and how you worship and how you, the language you use to talk about God. Is that, is that making sense at all? Oh, absolutely. Like what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, th- I, I know that this movie is not interested in a theistic sort of conversation. Well, I say that it's not interested in a Yahweh conversation in a, in a Judeo Christian conversation, but that's just something that really stuck with me in that notion of giving someone else a chance. You know, it is hard to deny as I look at my kids, you know, I look at my kids and I think, goodness gracious, what are you going to inherit from sure my generation, but on up ahead of me and you and I as well, like they're going to have to have the chance to form it in their own way. And woe are we, our generation, our parents' generation and on up to wag our finger and say, no, 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 this is strictly, this is strictly and only how God is. You know, mm-hmm. this is strictly, this is strictly and only how your expression of God should be. I think that's a very dangerous sort of position to take. And I think the movie, though not interested in a Judeo-Christian conversation, is interested in a more, uh, uh, freedom kind of conversation. That being, you break the system. Mm, right. You break the system because once you break the system that has bound you to rigidity, that's when, let's use our own language here, our own faith language, that's when you're fully ready and able and capable to kind of see the world around you the way God actually sees it. I, hmm. Yeah. That's I, a big, that's a big diatribe there. So, well, I think that's what you're saying about the position of the film is probably why the system purge button has no failsafe. <laughs> that's probably why it's, you know, out in the open. Yeah. You have to break the system. It's, it's there prominent for anybody to come along and to, and to accomplish that. I think that I, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. I actually, I, I'm actually not as fond of Brian McLaren and his thought processes as you are, but I do sense in him a, a tremendous sincerity. And I admire, uh, sort of the, the, the way that he's trying to, to bridge the gap for a lot of, for a lot of people, um, I think that don't necessarily know how to reconcile themselves with, with, uh, what we would, uh, perhaps deem orthodoxy, as it were. Um, but I think one of the things that stuck out to me in this film, and to your point, when asked, you know, once, once, uh, so once Dana and Marty, make it into the, the the chamber down there and they're looking around and seeing all the figures, they, you know, Dana realizes, no, it wasn't just about killing us. It was about punishing us. She says that it's like, it was about punishing us. And then Marty says, why? And that's when the director emerges and her first words are because you're young, hmm. yeah. because you are, you know, it's, it's, it's your youth. And what are the, what are the, the gigantic, you know, beings that are going to come and destroy the world. What are they called? The ancient ones. They're called, sure. uh, you know, the, the, the ancients. And they are, you know, there's a line in the film that I didn't write down and can't remember verbatim, but basically there's a moment where, um, the security guard, uh, the security guard Truman is sitting there sort of processing all of what he's seeing. And, and the, the, the other person who's, 
sort of working with Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins, I believe her character's name is Lynn. Lynn is telling him, you know, this is old, you know, these ancient gods, monsters, stuff of nightmares kind of thing. And then she says to him, she says, you get used to it. And he says, should you? And I loved that because the moment like then cuts to something else that's happening somewhere else in the narrative. But, you know, she's she's basically telling him like, yeah, this is, you know, this is a lot of uh, sort of craziness, but you get used to it. And he's like, you know, should you? And I know a significant amount of people who have I'm, I'm going to characterize what I think is an understanding of Christianity for a lot of people. I think this is false, but I think a lot of people see Christianity as a system of rules and regulations given by a rigid and angry God who uh, who then just constantly has to be appeased, that we constantly sure. have to work hard and suffer. And what happens? We transgress and we are punished. You know, that it's, right. th- it's this very sort of wrathful kind of idea of religion. And to the people who hold that opinion about religion, uh, I... My first response would be uh, to repent and apologize because there's a significant amount of of preachers out there who put forth that perspective. Uh, they they sure. talk about it in that kind of language. They they issue it forth in that kind of language. And something that struck me in this conversation about like you know if, if you don't transgress you won't be punished or if you transgress you'll be punished. Something that stuck out to me was this notion of I think we have a belief or we have a perspective that all. Uh, or if not all, most of the commandments that have been given to us have been given to us to somehow make God happy. That they that that God somehow delights in giving us a ton of you know hoops that we have to jump through, a ton of things that we have to do. The film itself, uh, you know, the the it's implied in that conversation between Lynn and Truman that the monsters came from the ancient ones. That the all of these beings that are in these cubes are actually creations of the ancient ones. And when that implication was made, I was like, wow, so the ancient ones essentially let loose all these monsters or or gave them this system for something that's never going to be resolved. It's just going to be repeated sure, and repeated sure. and repeated. And, you know, th- these gods are constantly, you know, we, we're not given really a time frame. Maybe it's annually, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's weekly. God, that's terrifying. But these gods have to be appeased, you know, constantly. And, uh, and, and if they're not, they only mess up once. In the narrative of the film, it all only falls apart once. You know, so you think about all of these different times that, you know, these victims have been sort of offered up this ritualistic thing. And I think there's a significant amount of people who see religion as that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to be more specific, see Christianity as that. Like, oh, well, you've got to, you know, bow down before this God. I've heard prominent atheists speak about it in that kind of language. And to be honest, I don't blame them given the way that some believers talk about it. But that is not what I see in the text of the Gospels. It's not what I see in in my understanding of what Christianity really at its substance is. As a, as a parent, and, and I'm sure you probably will relate to or maybe nuance this a little bit, you know, a lot of the commands that I give, commands I say, a lot of the instruction that I give to my son, if I were him, and I know I did it with my father, if I were him, I'd be, you know, you get the idea of, man, dad never lets me do anything. Like he, does, he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He never, he never lets me do anything. But I know as from the perspective of a parent, a lot of times I'm giving these instructions, 
because I don't want harm to come to them. It's for them. Yeah. It's not for me. It's not because I'm like, ha, I get to make the rules. You know, like it's for their good. It's for their better. Every now and then you do that, though. Let's be honest. I do. I do. It always <laughs> it always feels so good. Um, but, you know, in all sincerity that it's like it's not that I delight in all the rules and regulations that I have to hand down to my son. I don't delight in that. What I delight in is in being in relationship with my son. That's what I, that's what gives me joy. That's what gives me pleasure is, is just spending time with him or, or, you know, playing Disney infinity with him or do, th those are the things that I delight in. The rules are basically this just there to teach him how to be in the world because if he does not abide by them, there will be consequences that will bring pain into his life, that will bring suffering into his life. And it's interesting to me because I'm looking at this film, and in this film, the Ancient Ones want the punishment. That's how they're appeased. They want this punishment to take place. And I think a sizable amount of people who are not Christians, or maybe some people who are Christians, perhaps see God in that light. And I do not think that that is at all the character and heart of God. That he delights sure. in punishment. Um, you know, I, I wrote down uh, as a possible scripture verse to reference uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. It's a moment when Jesus is being criticized for eating with tax collectors. And it's uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's right after he's actually called a tax collector, Matthew, to come and be one of his disciples. And, you know, they say to him, hey, you know, uh, why are you eating with tax collectors? And he responds to them. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come mm. to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he specifically says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting there, um, a passage from Hosea chapter six, verse six. And I think that is more indicative of the heart of God. Sure. The sure. book of Ezekiel says, I don't desire for the wicked to perish. That's not what I want. I think so many times we believers or non-believers alike can look at sort of the system and think that the purpose of the system is indeed what the purpose of the system in Cabin in the Woods is, for us to just perpetually suffer, to keep God right. happy. And no wonder. Kept in line. Yeah, exactly. Kept, you know, uh, fall in line, do this. And Nathan, no wonder people reject that idea sure, of a relationship sure. with God. No wonder people reject serving someone who would simply punish in cyclical patterns and, sure. and, and have great delight from punishing in cyclical patterns. I do not believe as a devout Christian, as what I consider myself to be a devout Orthodox Christian, I do not believe that that is the heart and character of God. But I understand, given the way people talk about it, and given the way people act and behave to others, why a sizable amount of people do believe that about God. I want to invite you to... Well, and it's fascinating. It's, yeah, I mean, it's... Just fascinating to me, like the language Jesus uses. It's not that I don't get it. You know, we want a, a system gets created to, at least at its inception, to make a thing more streamlined, to make a thing more or less complex, to make a thing easier to sort of make sense of. I understand the, the impulse, but at the same time, it's hard to hear something like, the statement of Jesus, I've come that they might have, li have life and have it, use whatever sort of uh, version you want here, have it to the full, abundant life. Like, I, I just don't see Jesus referring to a rigid system as abundant life. <laughs> right. You know, right. like, like, 
Like now guys, the, I, I know I said abundant life. Um, and I know what you think that means, but what it really means is like, just, just do all of these very strict things. Right. Then that, that's abundant life. Like, well, no, I just, you know, I don't, I, I think the minute you can begin to step away from your system, you know, Philip Yancey, I, I know you're familiar with, and it's been years since mm-hmm. I've read his stuff, but in one of his books and probably many of them, but, but I think there was one in particular that, that he really honed in on this. He talked about where he actually, what made him believe basically. And it was nature, music, and romantic love. Mm. That these three, that these three things were indicators of to him the, the existence of, of God or, or helped, helped grow his own personal faith. And I think that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to talk about here. And I think maybe you're at least alluding to like, not those three things specifically, but as in you've got to be able to abandon the system and let the Lord actually reveal himself because he's just not, I'm sorry, but he's just not revealed in the system. The system just keeps you in line. I mean, frankly, you know, the Lord wants you to say, Hey, step out of the line and Mm -hmm. we'll go run and play together and I'll show you wondrous things and you'll get to have abundant life. And I know what I'm saying is feels very unrelated to the movie, but it's just sort of piggybacking on some of what you're, I think articulating. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, perhaps as we, as we eyeball kind of, kind of steering, steering towards home, one of the things that I've said often, it's important to me to distinguish for some of my Christian friends. This is specifically to uh, some people who are very troubled by the language of change or the language of, oh, we're, we're growing and shifting. Well, are you manipulating the scriptures for your own purposes and intentions? And, you know, one of the things that I deeply believe is what you were saying, talking about the system. I kept wanting, I kept mentally inserting and substituting the word system for the word law. And, mm, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that, and, and, and where we are, we are told uh, by the writings of Paul that, hey, you know, like we, we were under the law. And the law served a purpose, a very important, valuable gift it was supposed to be seen to us. But he said, with Christ, now you're not under the law anymore. And one of the things that sometimes uh, I have to make a distinction for people is you start talking about changing climate or, or changing uh, the way you interact with people or, uh, you know, shifts in faith. Boy, I'm about to make a statement that could get me in a lot of trouble, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, one of the things that I've try to distinguish for people is I deeply believe that God is, is, is the same, that he is constant from Old Testament to New Testament. Um, so how I reconcile the difference in language between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this, that we had the law and nothing about the law changed with the coming of Jesus Christ, in my belief. Nothing, nothing about it really changed. What did change, nothing about the nature of God changed, nothing about the law changed. What did change and it changed fully, completely, and utterly, was the way a sinful people engage with a holy God. That changed. That game changed completely after the coming of Christ and after Christ's completed work. So I think what's significant for us to remember is I think there's still a lot of people who if they had to be, this is the statement, they just need to, some people need to start being honest with themselves that at the end of the day, they trust following the law to redeem them more than they trust the completed work of Christ to sure, redeem them. Sure. They trust yep. being good, Come on. not transgressing. They Come trust on. making sure that they have <laughs> followed the law to redeem them. 
And in, instead of surrendering to the game changer that we believe to be the coming of Jesus Christ, you know, and, and boy, I think, you know, I, I think we're getting a lot heavier theologically than we typically do on this show, but I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to apologize for it because I'm very passionate about this. I, I deeply believe that there's a lot of very troubled people who feel that it is up to them to save themselves, that sure. because of the system that they have in place, it is up to them like like a massive amount of employees in a control room, it is up to us to appease the gods. It is up to us to make sure we follow the system, punish somebody else, keep the wheels turning, and that is that is our role. And one thing that I think of is, man, people are going to groan and roll their eyes at this. In my belief of what happened when Christ came, if you want to use the cabin in the woods analogy, it's that Christ didn't say, okay, well, punish somebody else, go ahead and, you know, purge the system, unleash the monsters. Christ himself entered the system, entered it and unleashed the monsters, if you will, on himself and took them all on himself. And then in that way, undermined the system and undermined sure. and completed everything that needed to be completed for that. And that's what I would express is the gospel. Is that, hey, you don't have to go out to the cabin in the woods anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you don't you don't have to uh, to fear or to worry about that anymore because that has already been appeased. The gods have forever been appeased. The the penalty for sin has forever been paid, has forever been sure. taken care of, sure. that the, the 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 price, the wages of death have been accomplished. And we probably don't have time. To really go into all of that theological unpacking, I just dropped a grenade in a backpack, and uh, <laughs> there it was. I adore, I adore the fact that that has become part of the fear of God vernacular. Is <laughs> just tossing a grenade in a backpack in a Jansport, oh, a Jansport man. backpack. And, but but isn't that fascinating though, Reed? I mean, I would I would agree with you, and and to the extent, and I'm a fan of Joss Whedon, and and you know when he's got a movie out, I read interviews and things like that, like. Uh, he definitely, well, I, I don't want to speak for the man's faith. My, my gleaning, uh, is that he definitely is a, not a person of faith and be definitely more, <clears throat> more on the agnostic, if not atheist side, very much a humanist, uh, which, which has its own virtues unto itself and don't want to discredit that whatsoever. But isn't it interesting that what they would probably intend as an indictment of religion in some ways syncs up rather well with the work of Christ, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that, uh, you know, again, there's the very nihilistic. If you mess with the system, all of it's all gone, but our interpretation, our takeaway from that would be, you have to mess with the system yeah. or it's just all going to stay in the cycle anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cabin in the woods. <laughs> so there's cabin in the woods. Um, well, I, you know, we could probably go on for another half hour, but I think that that's a good spot to sort of, uh, exit the, uh, the elevator. Um, but, uh, Ding. but I, uh, I, I do sincerely want to hear, uh, as I'm sure you do, Nathan, we want to hear what you guys think about this, about this film. You know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but as we always say, not the end of the conversation. Um, so, uh, obviously you guys wanted us, to have a conversation about this movie. You, you, uh, we, we thank you again for responding to that survey. And on that note, you're going to see, you know, a number of other results from the survey come out in the next, in the next few months. But 
specifically on this film, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Um, you know, did, was there anything else that you would add to the conversation? Reach out to us by social media or in a variety of ways. You can, um, follow us on Twitter. Uh, what's our Twitter handle? Uh, the podcast Twitter handle is at the fear of God. And, uh, you can also like us on Facebook. There's a link there on Twitter to do that. And, uh, you could also, uh, follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can I find you on Twitter? They can find me on Twitter at the Nathan Ralph. And you might be going here, Reed. So I apologize, I apologize if I'm, uh, uh, jumping the gun here, but in the case you weren't, uh, we would encourage you guys. Some of you have been very faithful to have done this lately. Um, it's helpful to us to have, um, some positive uh, words on iTunes specifically. So if you're enjoying the show, which we really hope you are, we certainly enjoy, uh, bringing it to you, bringing the show to you. So, uh, would really appreciate, you know, sharing a little bit of love on iTunes with a review. You know, if let your friends know uh, we're out here, and uh, we certainly enjoy making the show for you. So I cut you off, Reed. I'm sorry. No, no, that's per that's perfect. Yeah, please do leave us an iTunes review. And uh, just two final notes: you can uh, go to more than one lesson dot com to comment on some of these individual posts, and you can also email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail dot com. That's fearofgodpodcast at gmail dot com. And and uh, otherwise, uh, we hope you've we hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that uh, it was all that you hoped for when you voted for it. So, um, so uh, follow us on social media to see what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to be heading into a couple of uh, you know Christmassy December themed episodes here at the Fear of God. Um, but uh, sincerely, uh, Nathan, thank you very very much for having this conversation with me and taking the time. I appreciate it. Indeed, my friend. And we'll uh, talk to you guys next week. 